Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. So, so we should, I mean, that's, we'll, we'll keep that, but we should sure, probably interview, uh, introduce our uh, guest our this week. Our dear friend, Dick Wall. Yes. Who we miss dearly. Yeah. We've not seen him in couple of years oh it's been a while i haven't seen many people in a couple of years really i mean mean, particularly not in the last year not not other than virtually anyway Um, yeah right yeah you know yeah well uh, we we know dick from way way back uh java posse java posse roundup which we did up here for many years Mm -hmm. um i think that was probably the first the the way that i first met you is in person yeah oh no i I, I, I mean, remember, I guess I was listening to the job. I remember exactly how we met you. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. This is, I, I have pretty good recall for some of this stuff. The very first time we heard from Mr. James Ward, we were talking about ECMAScript on the Java uh-huh. Posse. Yeah. And we couldn't work out what it was or what its relationship to JavaScript was. And we were yep. all over the place. I remember this discussion. We were about as ill-informed as you could be on a topic. And during that, we were, you know, like Tor and, and Carl were like Googling. And we, I think we managed to stagger our way into some kind of understanding of the, of the, uh, relationship. The between and, two yeah, relationship. and then, and then this guy, James Ward, he said, he, he and you were, really good at this you kind of reached out and you're like it's a good discussion uh you know you ended up pretty much where i thought you were and that's i i remember that was uh huh and it was very refreshing to have somebody take that line instead huh. of you idiot you got it all yeah. wrong which is usually what we heard on the java posse yeah. you don't know anything you got it all wrong Wow, you have a great memory because I I have almost forgotten what ECMAScript even is. So. <laughs> well, and also I feel like James has always had kind of a natural knack for nonviolent communication. So yeah, that's what you were experiencing right there. And it's rare. It's rare. <laughs> I'd I'd like to think I have some of that too. And it's rare amongst engineers, um, which it shouldn't be because an engineer should use whatever tools they have to get the job done. Friendly, good yeah. communication is an important tool no no matter what else you do it doesn't matter you know good person bad person all of that it's simply more effective to be nice to people uh Hmm. if you are trying to solve a problem right yeah but you're british (laughs) sometimes it doesn't feel as good though (laughs) to to be nice yeah um that's like stabbing that's old cultural stuff that we were trained from lizard brain from birth yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's often what they attribute it to, but I think probably like actually some masculine. Yeah, yeah, like it's it's the that, patriarchy, yeah. man. Yeah, the patriarchy. I mean, I do have a, a temper, which if pushed far enough will surface. Yep. And that... <laughs> As do we all. Yep. And that's if not the pull a request side. goes escalates too far then then you see the the mean dick come out it's it's extremely rare to see it over something as trivial as coding it's usually it's usually much more personal matters than oh, like yeah. mm-hmm. you know work is work uh life yeah. is life there's yeah there's a whole level of different and yeah actually that's that's always been something that i've been lucky in life i think with that whenever work seems to be getting like heavy and you're starting to worry about it and stuff like that Something actually important happens, um, often bad, but it completely resets your perspective to the point that that thing I was worrying about actually doesn't matter at all. This is much more important. And I can't believe I was that stuck up in all that stuff that was happening because this is way the hell more important and that doesn't even matter anymore. So yeah. Uh, and that's that's happened a bunch of times yeah yeah i was convinced you were about to break into song at the beginning of that <laughs> whenever work gets <laughs> like I, a, I felt like there's a song ballad like, yeah. a, like a disney uh yes disney thing exactly. yeah yes exactly that so um so dick is one of the main reasons why i got into scala probably amazing main reason why a lot of people got into scala mm-hmm. but i remember Java Posse roundups and podcasts and Dick was just going on and on about this he new language. Shut up about how great about it was it. and and at some point I'm like, okay, I'll, I guess we I'll have to look it. at it. I, it's like I was happy with Java, but but I, I guess I got to look into this thing and it, it 
set me on a whole different career and thinking path. So very thankful for you having helped me help me uh, get there. And, and it made you super obnoxious about invariance and stuff like that. Oh, immutability. <laughs> yeah, and man. It's, I it's know. Like, I've I've become he's really, a bigot. I've become a real bigot thanks to you. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's. It, I was thinking the other day. Uh, some and this happened without me really noticing. But I've now spent much more time working in Scala than I ever spent working in Java. Oh, Is wow. that right? Yeah, I've been using Scala longer than I ever used Java for now. Oh my gosh! And wow. that's that's pretty. Yeah, how many years wild. now have you been doing Scala? Uh, I discovered it. Carl actually pointed it out to me back in two thousand and eight. Scala, wow. and I started oh, getting right, into it at that point. Carl was always, always out in front. He was, yeah, things. but he, he moved on to Pony and other right. shiny that's things right. after that. So. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the risk you run. To, you're always interested in the next shiny thing. Yep. Yep. The new, new thing. So are you using Scala 3? I'm not yet. Okay. Uh, like, I think this is true for, I think you'll find that this is true for most like shops that are really using Scala in the enterprise now, that's going to be a big move. That's going to happen slowly. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, when you've got a code base to drag along, it's not a quick, it's not a quick yeah. uh, kind of slot in. Uh, Have I've you had... dabbled in your free time? Oh yes. Uh, I did the, um, you familiar with the advent of code? Yeah. Thing? Uh -huh. yeah. 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 So I, I, this year I did the advent of code, uh, basically using only streaming and, Scala three just for the practice. Nice. I felt I felt that I needed to get better at both of those things. So I used yeah. like lazy streams um, yep. and and lazy everything, and I did it all in the Scala three syntax, which wow. I found wonderfully liberating. I have to say, isn't it? The, uh, the, the, the lack of curlies. The the one problem mm -hmm. I have now is the one or the few places where the you need doors. curlies. Yeah, yeah. They feel like cockroaches in the code now. It's, it's like totally oh, yes. oh, yeah, it's, it's yes, horrible. They do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I hope they can get that resolved because it is it just feels gross when you, yeah, you yeah. use functors. And we in our examples, we've intentionally avoided doing inline functors. We've like put them out into external functions <laughs> just so that we don't have to have the the braces. It's like changed yep. our code style. Yeah, it's a it's a very nice set of uh, changes. I, I I like very much and the you know and it's it's good. It's it's not profound. I mean, there are obviously fairly big syntax changes and and other things in there but when you actually look at things like the given uh the given and using it is really just a rename of implicits with some you know with with mm -hmm. some, some incremental improvements yeah. and once i realized that i'm like yeah this is nice it's, it, it explains better what's going on there's a little bit more emphasis on uh a non-anonymity so you know a lot of things that you yeah. had to give names to before that didn't really need them you don't have to have have to give them names anymore but for the most part you can kind of substitute a couple of keywords in and you're using the new stuff so but i prefer the explicit syntax rather than just almost having it as a side effect of implicits i like saying oh that's why you're doing this i i don't have to look at it and wonder what's going instead on instead of the overloading right. of implicits yeah, for right. so many oh yeah things. i see what you yeah using this and given this yeah I, mm -hmm. I, I see what you're saying it tells me that we're doing type classes here yeah yeah agreed yeah and yeah, to me that's yeah we're with implicits it's like implicit yeah <laughs> why <laughs> could be anything yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Implicitly was, you know, because I've done Scala training for years as well. Implicitly was always the thing that people tripped over. Yeah. They're like, yeah. how does this work? And when you show them the definition of implicitly, it's <laughs> so ridiculously simple that you can see everybody kind of deflates. They're like, well, that's, that's, that's really, it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, that's it. That's, that's this magical thing that makes everything, you know, make, makes all this stuff work. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty simple. You, yeah. You, you get the thing passed into you and you hand it right back again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what else in Scala 3 was is interesting to you or what, what stuck out? or uh, For me personally, uh, and I think I, wa I want to I'm not 100% sure on this because, uh, again, being um, uh, enterprisey, we're not even at Scala 2.13 right uh, okay. now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Most of the stuff we're doing is still in Scala 2.12. So I, I have a feeling this was actually something that went into Scala 2.13, uh, but it's definitely there in... Um, in Dottie and in, in Scala 3 is uh, immutable arrays are mm. actually huge for me. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's that the JVM is so much more performant on arrays of primitives in particular. Uh, 
And I, yeah. I, I must admit, I haven't actually. Uh, the theory's there, but I have yet to experiment with them and prove to myself that these are the answer to all, all of my all of my dreams. But I, I think they are. All of your mathematical it's, performance Well, issues. it's the fact that prior to my current job, I, I went back. Yeah, I don't know if you guys know. I, I actually... Uh, my master's degree is in geographical information systems from yeah. years ago, geospatial data. Yeah. And I used to love doing that. And then I kind of moved into, you know, all the all the back end stuff that I do now. It's always been like masses of data moving around, lots and lots of parallel processing and high powered computing and stuff like that. And that's really because GIS, there's a ton of that because yeah. the data sets are huge in, in uh, geographical and information so fun. systems. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I kind of fell out of that. Now over the years, I've done like uh, power power grid simulations and human genetics and stuff like that. Yeah, and, I remember you were in genetics for many yeah. years doing Scala Scala genetic modeling stuff. And yeah. and at SIBO, when I was working there, I came full circle and I ended up doing geographical information systems again. And I was like, huh. I forgot how much fun this is. I love working in it. Um, I, I, I think cool. very spatially anyway. And uh, so I got kind of into that. But one of the problems in the JVM is you're either fast and unsafe or you're safe and not fast. Because yeah. as soon as you put something in an array, like an array of doubles, which is what you need for raster images, like a two-dimensional array of doubles, uh, or actually not even a two-dimensional array of doubles, the fast way to go is a single-dimensional array and pointer arithmetic, basically, to access the the things you want and as soon as you get into that you start hitting um you know the the safety problems where you have to take defensive copies of everything or else somebody comes and just like stamps all over the data that you're working on yeah, yeah. and so immutable arrays which again i have yet to actually verify are just as fast um and all of that stuff if if i can use those for the rest of stuff that i was working on when i when i get a chance to kind of port that across uh, that would be excellent. It will make everything nice and safe, really fast. Yeah. I won't have to take defensive copies of everything. Yeah. Uh, so it'll solve a lot of problems. That's cool. So that was a question that we were um, kind of pondering, or at least I, I've started looking at this dichotomy in programming languages as reliable versus fast programming. Yeah. Productivity or performance. Can't we have both? <laughs> right. Right, or at least get closer that's, to both. That's right. kind of the the origin of the podcast was was talking about that dichotomy and wondering, are we converging mm-hmm. these things, or are we continuing to just be on a divergent path? Like, is are these two things always at odds? And we can it's a pendulum that just kind of mm. swings back and forth, and you you can be safe or you can be fast, and or can you be both? Can you be productive and reliable? Because <laughs> Python is adding things, I think, that are helping make it more reliable, but it can never be, you know, as reliable as Scala. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I do a lot partly because of the big data and big, you know, powerful processing stuff and things like that. Uh, I, I do a lot of thinking in this space um, about like a huge part of scaling up is still optimization. This is certainly what I found. And, and it's it's become even more relevant in the current age of AWS and Google Cloud and stuff like that, because you pay by the minute now, right? Mm-hmm. It's a pure utility. Any, anyone can make something go faster by running it on 100 machines at once, right? <laughs> but you end up paying just as much money because you mm. haven't you haven't saved anything. You're, you're getting the result quicker, but you're now running it on 100 machines instead of one. So you've traded, you've traded down the time, but you haven't saved any money. One of the best things you can do is actually optimize your code because then it runs faster and it costs you less money. So I spend a lot of time, uh, or I did at SIBO, bringing down the, um, the, the processing cost of like pretty much everything. Huh. And uh, there's, there's really two things there. There's a, a lot of people are very into the what can I do on the kind of meta scale of optimization? Can I run it in Scala? Uh, or can I, uh, you know, use arrays? That, uh, admittedly, I did a lot of this. But another part of it is the more intelligent uh, kind of optimization, which is, can I just do less work? 
right? Mm. That's a huge optimization that people overlook. They, they go into a, a routine and they're like, how can I make this routine faster? And I look at it and go, does this thing even need to run at all? <laughs> can I make it lazy so that it only Ooh. runs when somebody asks for it in that one in 100th time that they actually ask for it? Now, mm-hmm. I've just made it 100 times faster for most purposes without any real effort at all. I just stuck a lazy in front of it or yeah. you know, turned it into something that is uh, a, a by-name function. So it only it only executes when it's when it's required and part of where we're at with programming is that the programmer still has to decide whether or not something should be lazy or not and so the programmer is making these decisions that ultimately impact how much work is being done well that's interesting because the julia language at least aspects of it are like all lazy like they they don't evaluate a function they don't compile a function into native code until the first time you ask for it. Yeah. So that's kind of moving in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think if there's, and like I said, I've been working in Scala a really long time now. Uh, I think one of the biggest criticisms I've got is that it has a focus on <clears throat> eagerness versus laziness, mm-hmm. which really, if I, if I was in, in the ideal world, it would be flipped around. Lazy would be the default. Eager would be the thing that you mm, huh. that you push towards. And that's one of the reasons why when I did the advent of code, I'm like, I'm going to do this whole thing in streams because I want <clears throat> to start getting my thought patterns better on everything being lazy and everything needing to be forced uh, when huh. you're doing these things instead of the other way around. And quite often now, it, it, it worked. Quite often now, I'll look at a problem and I'll be like, I can just throw a stream at this, and uh, you know, whoever's processing it, if they decide to give up halfway through, they're not going to do the rest of that work, uh, you know, yeah. stuff like that. So, uh, and it it is pretty lightweight. I think the biggest risk with streams is you can get yourself into trouble if you hang on to the head. You end up growing the stream, mm. and it becomes just like an in-memory resource arc as well. Mm. So, well, and then there's some some things that just don't map well to streams like a sum, like, like any operation that is going to essentially take the whole data set in a stream, what is a whole data set? And so then you have to implement some sort of concept of a window or something to be able to do some of those, those operations. I mean, it's possible depending on the implementation of some, that even that would lend you some, some help, because if it's in an eager, uh, you know, an eager collection, you've still got to load the whole thing in. Uh, right. But if the if the sum implementation is is done correctly, you're loading in a batch and summing that up and throwing that out and loading in the next batch and summing it up. It depends how how it's been implemented. But yeah, there's and and there is a lot taken on faith there. You, you know, uh, sometimes I end up going into the source code and I'm like, is this as lazy as I think it is right now? Do I, yeah. I, I need to check that because there's two billion of these things coming in and I need to make sure it's not going to blow chunks when I actually put this out in production. But yeah, it's an es- another interesting thing that I've thought about is how the developer has to think about the size of the data. And if the size of the data can't fit into memory, then you have a totally different construct and programming model than if, if, it can fit into memory. And right. So the developer is having to make that decision where it's like, I don't know if developers should be making that decision, right? Because it really depends. Like, And then you run into issues where I thought this thing would fit into memory, but then in production, I had a whole lot more data and then it blew up. And so I think that's another thing that Julia makes transparent because they really design around huge data sets and thinking about you know what can you fit into memory versus and how. Yeah. how and I think it makes a lot of that stuff transparent. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was looking into Julia over the holidays as well, actually. I've, uh, uh, because, uh, as you know, Bruce, I think we've talked about this before, prior to Scala, Python was my number one language. I loved, uh, even though I've been working in Java for years, I really love Python. And, and what I love about it is the simplicity of the language. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the only language I, I, I mean, I've had a lot of practice at remembering all the things that Scala has in it, but that's a hell of a lot. Python, you can learn in like a day and you can hold it in your head. Like mm-hmm. the whole thing, it's super simple. Um, it's not. I don't even most... know Python and I've written a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very very straightforward. There's a few little quirks. Um, mm-hmm. You know what's funny is, uh, and th- and this is you know there's there's heavy irony in this for me. For years, people railed against Python for one stupid reason, which was significant white space. 
it was that was always the reason for that like i don't i don't want you know tabs and spaces like blowing up my code now we've got haskell and actually scala as well and significant white space is the new black it's the coolest thing ever and i'm like yeah well python was a couple of decades ahead of you guys there so no, no. <laughs> of course the yeah. significant white space also gave us yaml which is evil so <laughs> yeah yaml is but i think yaml is is terrible not because of the significant white space but because of the lack of a schema <laughs> That is, well, uh, there's lots of reasons. They, yeah, yeah. Uh, I work in GCP a lot right now, and that's basically just gobs and gobs of YAML, and you never so know when it's going to work and when it's not going to work. And... The lack of of composition. and Yeah, I, I'm really interested in, um, we've talked about it a few times, but uh, uh, DAW, DAW Lang, right. because DAW Lang, it has so many things where I'm like, oh, that's just like just what you need in that circumstance, like composability, the ability to like pull in pieces like libraries, like YAML has no concept of like a library and being able to like reuse stuff. And so, well, they were trying to be simple and I feel like this is a common theme. Somebody goes, let's do something that's really simple, which, and you know, just make it, just make it super easy. And then it doesn't scale or people want, people need more features than it has. And eventually they figure out that it needs to have some kind of programming language stuff in it. And by then, you know, it's like you see the whole learning cycle and you go, Oh, that's when they gave up on the thing is when they realized, Oh God, this needs to be some kind of programming language. Yeah. 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 Typically when you're looking at a problem, there is a certain complexity rating that that problem has that needs to be met. Mm -hmm. Where are you going to deal with that complexity? If it's not in your language, if your language is super simple, then the complexity is going to be all above that. You're going to, you right. know, you've got uh, an example of this uh, that I can pull out of my head is the whole uh, rest, the rest verbs thing, right? Yeah. Very simple in theory. Uh, you've got uh, get, put, post, and delete, and, you know, a couple of others that I never use and can't remember. And everyone's yeah. like, oh, it's so simple. But then you end up with these incredibly tortured uh, APIs because you've only got four things to work with. So all your complexity has to go in the level above that. And That's right. It's, you I'm have, not, to, you I'm have not... to fit the four-verb model. And when your problem doesn't fit the four-verb model, then things get really Yeah, you just messy. overload. <laughs> yeah. So right. it's, it's where you put it. Now, in Scala, <clears throat> Scala's like, we're going to put a ton of flexibility and complexity into the language, which means that you've got to learn all that but then your overhead for the next part is way less like mm. you, you know you've got yeah do go you, on do you ever okay yeah one of the questions we wanted to ask you is like okay you've been using scala all this time <clears throat> are there areas where you let's say cheat and fall back to i don't know making objects mutable objects and things like that I, extremely rarely, and that will always be so. That I, I actually teach this. Um, the the only reason I ever really do that is for performance. Uh, there are situations where mutability is still faster. Uh, what you know, the occasional while loop and variable in there can save a bunch of time. Uh, and I I cover this in the training. I'm like, it's not wrong to do this, but. The first thing you're going to need to do is profile it and prove that that's the, where the issue is. Like, I, mm. I'm not going to entertain any any PRs that come across that are like, I think this will make things faster. I'm like, yeah. I don't care what you think. Show me a profile. Show me this thing prove taking 95% yep. of the time. And then show me another profile afterwards where it's like 5% of the time now. And then we'll talk about the implementation and whether right. the mutability is, is allowed. But no, I, I do tend to really embrace the immutability and i found it's it just makes my life simpler that's that's what mm -hmm. it comes down to it's much simpler to reason about code that yep. way immutability was one and then you also were wondering about objects like well, how right. often do you use kind of typical oh inheritance that kind of stuff these days it's definitely i i flatten I, I i'm way more flat in the hierarchies that i use these days um you know scala has a full kind of inheritance system and it's actually very useful uh you know scala 3 aside for a moment most of what i do these days 
is in some way an algebraic data type or something like that. It has a super trait. It has a bunch of concrete you know, case classes or case objects underneath it. That's such a common pattern that I don't even think about it anymore. And you don't even really think about that as inheritance as such anymore. That That is a category yeah. of things that you're defining right there. It is an algebraic data type. Uh, and I know that, uh, you know, that that's another area that I think Scala 3 has really improved on is the whole... Uh, there's, there was a bunch of things that went in there that I'm very excited about. Opaques is another one. Yeah. But having the ADTs, having you know, kind of first class support for ADTs in Scala three is just really nice. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a really big improvement. But it is much more readable. And have you noticed that Python three ten has ADTs? I I haven't, I haven't been keeping up with Python like yeah. I should. Um, I yeah. did see, and that that I find regrettable was that um. There was the falling out, and uh, Guido, who I, I knew from what, the days I used to work at um, Google, and the, kind of the community split. And I was like, I, I can't believe that happened. That was like a hell freezing over kind of thing. Yeah, so. but you know, my I haven't talked to him much since this happened, but my feeling is that he didn't want to be that was BDFL. He wants the freedom of not being the boss. Or I even the implied that. boss, yeah. Those those uh, golden handcuffs usually come with a way higher price than you think they're going to. So, I mean, I don't know that he ever wanted it. So, <laughs> so you know, I think it gave him a choice, an excuse to get out. And I do feel like he's happier. That's my my yeah. one or two con- con- Good. So communications still, with. Him. He is still active in the community. Then he didn't very, sort of but disappear. just as a contributor and you know a thought leader, but not the boss and he's working at microsoft yep so well and uh uh, my other buddy neil gafter ended up working at microsoft and doing really interesting things there as well so um yeah it's gotten to be a good place to work again and i think with guido they just say we'll pay for python development come work for us nice yeah because they they have boo don't they Or, or maybe that's really old now i thought boo was like the microsoft version of python Oh, I don't even, that was never even on my radar. Oh, wasn't it? Okay. No. But I do wish they had, like, you know, for their, um, what is it, their, I can't remember, oh, PowerShell. I wish they had just used Python for PowerShell Mm. instead of, Uh, instead of, instead of the language, which is incomprehensible, I think. People like to create languages. I've noticed that. It's fun, and it it should be something you do in school. Yes. But it seems so easy. You know, you just like, I use programming languages all the time. Therefore, I could design a programming language. These guys are idiots. I could do better. (laughs) You know, and the more that I study programming languages, the more that I do not want to do that. That just looks like, oh, my gosh, I don't know enough about programming languages to design one. But back to Dunning Kruger, which we yeah. talked about before we started the recording, I I think I could design a programming language. <laughs> oh, you could? Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. Would it Dunning be any Kruger good? does not apply to me. Yeah. It does not apply to me. Whether whether, whether I would want to use your programming language is another question. So yeah, I mean, well, there was that. I mean, that was the that was probably one of the more interesting times from doing the Java Posse was the. Uh, you know, a couple of years after we started when Java had just completely stagnated, nothing was happening. Yep. And suddenly it was like whack-a-mole. There's all these languages popping up all over the place. Scala was one of the ones that I, yeah. I, I identified and got into. But do you remember Salem, for yeah. example? Yeah. Yes. yeah, with Gavin King, yeah. Totally unimpressed by that. But what? at the time, Kotlin, I, yeah. I saw Ceylon at the same time as I saw Kotlin, and I'm going... Both of these look equally uninteresting to me. And then several years later, revisiting Kotlin, it was like, oh, they completely redid, or at least what I remembered of it, and made it so much better. Kotlin is a really interesting case study, I think, because what I I think, you know, obviously there are great uh, reasons, good, good, strong reasons to use the language. It's a, it's a strong, well thought out language. But I think the reason it became popular was that it was so tightly integrated into the IntelliJ tooling, and mm. that gave it an edge over the oh, yeah. other things. And really, the last time I can remember something like that happening was Smalltalk, where the environment <laughs> and the language were that tightly coupled. They were basically yeah. unified. And yeah. Smalltalk was a lovely language that was just let down by 
crappy business models. But, uh, oh boy, yeah, I never <laughs> tried a, it because it was too expensive. Yeah, we had Joey on the show a while back yeah. to talk about small talk, and then I actually like built a small talk server and deployed it on Google Cloud Run, and oh. so it was fun to like dive into small talk. And if you could afford it, boy, stuff. you could do some impressive stuff in small talk, but. I don't know, three thousand dollars at the time for like a developer license or something. That was mm-hmm. too rich for. Well, yeah. it certainly wasn't going to get used in open source, was it? That's right. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. So you are you changed jobs? When when was the last time you changed jobs? Uh, I've been working at Hopper now for a couple of years, just okay. about. Uh, I moved to Boston. Um, I don't know how deep we want to go into like reasons and stuff but i think before we started recording i was talking about the fact that every time you know stuff seems important at work something really profound happens and it just redefines your life and you're suddenly aware of how little work matters like in the bigger scheme of things it and this has happened a bunch of times uh and in this case uh, and i don't want it to be a downer you know it's it happened three years ago now so i i'm fully come to terms with it but uh, at that time, there was a lot going on with work, and my mum suddenly got very sick, and mm. I dashed back to England, and I wasn't quite in time to catch her. Uh, I, I did at least talk to her, and we'd spent a bunch of time with her the year before. Um, but that had, looking back on it now, had like this kind of profound life-altering change in my attitude. Uh, one of the things that happened, because you know we moved to Boston, was... Jackie and I both sort of looked at each other and we're like, where are we going right now? We've been living in California for 12 years. Life is super comfortable. The last couple of years have slipped by and we've barely noticed. Like we've got into this routine of life just moving along. And all of a sudden, two years ago, and you're like, that was two years of my life that just passed and I didn't really notice. And so we were looking at that going, maybe it's time to shake things up a bit and make a move. And that was where the the seed began. The number of people I've had said, why on earth would you move from California to Boston? Uh, Mm. You know, like it's the craziest thing they've ever heard. And I'm like, because we needed a change. We needed something different in life to let us know that we were still, you know, we needed to notice life going on and stuff happening. And so we, we, you know, we started talking about, well, shall we go back to the UK? Um, Because we want to be closer to our family. And literally, New England came up I was already working for a company that was based here, but it's like halfway between where we were in California and England, kind of both physically and spiritually. This is It mm, feels a, yeah. a lot more like England up here mm. and stuff like that. It's a, it's a lot quicker, or it would be a lot quicker to go back and visit if we, you know, and we can get on planes again now. So at some point we will take advantage. It kind of feels like maybe like a new England it is. It's like That's, a whole new you know, England. What an idea. Yeah. And, you know, we just had uh, the holiday weekend where it rained the entire holiday weekend. So it is just like England. Every <laughs> holiday weekend, it just rains the whole time. So uh, it really was. It made me quite ho- quite homesick for the old for old Blighty. Huh. Uh, but, yeah. It, but but you all are happy and enjoying this change. And Yeah, I'm glad we moved into this house. So we're in uh, – we, we moved from – yeah, California, where we lived in California, super modern. The house that we lived in was almost—it came like almost a sealed unit. It was perfect. Uh, it was built to withstand earthquakes, and um, you know the whole thing was—it was the biggest problem I had with that house was you could never do anything on it yourself because any repair you made stood out like a sore thumb because everything else was perfect. <laughs> and you know, if you drilled a hole in the wall, it, it was always there. It was. A, a blemish in this otherwise perfect, perfect piece yeah. of sheetrock and stuff like that. So when we moved out here, we suddenly we're now living in a hundred-year-old house, which has so many warts and flaws. It's hilarious, <laughs> um, and everything we do just looks completely normal. I can drill holes in the wall and slap a bunch of uh, you know mud over it and kind of paint it, and it looks just like the rest of the house. It's great. So I have the best networking I've ever had anywhere here. We have like a gigabit or Cat6 running throughout the entire house nice. um, because I wasn't afraid to drill holes and, and get lines yeah. in and stuff like that. And uh, it's also a bigger house than we had. So when the pandemic hit, 
we were both like, thank goodness we've got this place. I've got the attic as an office. We've got the basement as like our own movie theater. And um, it's just a better house for riding out a pandemic in than the one that we had in California. It's funny. I keep encountering this thing where it's what you just described, where you have these seemingly little hurdles but they keep you from doing things. Yeah. Like your description of, oh, you know, you didn't feel like you could patch a hole properly. And so you just didn't make holes and that held you back. And, oh, it's for one of a nail, a shoe is lost, that poem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, things, things with the house, the house in California was almost resistant to change Um, Mm -hmm. because it's in California. There was no basement because you don't want a basement when you can have earthquakes because it will just tear the house apart. So what they do is they, they put, put a big old slab of concrete, reinforced concrete in the ground, and then they bolt the house to the top of it. And the idea is it Mm -hmm. should like float around if there's an earthquake, but of course you can't run wiring in a basement if it's not there. So you've got, you got nowhere to hide the wires when you're trying to put things in. And uh, Mm -hmm. it was like that kind of throughout the house. It was really difficult to find a way to ever run Ethernet or add something to it. Uh, Whereas this this place has so many nooks and crannies, there's probably, I don't know, a couple of skeletons (laughs) hidden away somewhere in there somewhere. And, you know, we can just poke holes in things and run some stuff around and all that good stuff. So uh, the, the, the other side of it is, it's pretty much constant work. <laughs> there's yeah. a lot. There's a lot of stuff that needs painting all the time, and uh, you know, shingles keep falling off the roof at the moment, so that's going to need some attention soon and stuff. So, like do you that. hire people, or do you do it yourself? I do some of these jobs. I refuse mm-hmm. to do plumbing. Like oh, yeah. it's against my nature to do plumbing. Plumbing is so stupid. Nothing fits. Everything <laughs> is some random size that, and and when you when you turn the water on water comes peeing out of holes and stuff like Wait, that. Like, are you talking about else can... plumbing or computer programming? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that. <laughs> Electrical work I can do. I'm getting getting pretty well practiced at that and running wiring and stuff like that. Simple handyman stuff um, is fine. Hmm. Anything structural, I wouldn't trust myself. Somebody else has to come in and do that. But hmm. yeah. So to switch gears, Bruce and I have been learning monads. Okay. We're, we're still on that journey <laughs> and we're, we're trying to, I don't know. We're trying to simplify it without using a metaphor. Well, yeah. The, the thing that occurred to me, I think it was just this morning is, you know, I think the metaphors actually made it harder for me to yeah. understand monads. I think, I think there's, I I've seen this cause I've taught, I cover like monads and and just functional advanced functional. Are you patterns. still teaching that course? Yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't been the last year, but or so, not with Bill. No, no. Just okay. just kind of. I I actually redid the advanced section, and I there, there were there were kind of things that I learned along the way that allowed me to do what I think is a, a bit more depth and a bit more descriptiveness in the in the type system. And are these public courses? Yeah, they're on Udemy. Okay. Um, oh, oh, I see. You're, yeah. you're so you're just recording them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do need to run them through the um, Scala 3 filter, uh, you know, migrate mm-hmm. them to Scala 3 at some point, which will happen when I get a bit more time. But uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, if, if you're happy with Scala 2, they're out there. And I, I've seen a lot of people try and really get hung up on these functional constructs. And, you know, the, the monads word, for example, it's like you've invoked some kind of magic incantation when you say it. And I, I think that it, it does. It, it totally gets in the way of learning what these things are. Once you once you work with them a bit, uh, and you have been working with them, like both mm-hmm. of you have been working with yep. them all the yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that every time you do something with an option and you like use a for expression over an option, you're already doing this stuff. Yeah. Or a you know the most common one that people aren't aware of is like futures and doing things in for expressions with futures and how they compose together, yeah. and. Uh, so you're already working with this stuff. And what I try and do is really downplay the whole thing. I'm like, let's have a look at options. Let's let's write an option. Let's mm-hmm. what do you need to be able to write an option? You need a map and you need a flat map. What do those look like? Let's let's go through that process of writing those together. And and along the way, one of the things I say is, you know, really what you're doing here is this pattern is about providing some container that you 
that you like the characteristics of. Uh, it's, you know, the container has optionality in it, or it has uh, kind of the asynchronicity in it, in the case of futures. It's something that happens, but you don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can, and what you're interested in is the thing that's inside of that. So you've got this interesting container, this box, that has, uh, you know, something inside it that you're interested in. You don't really care about the box. All you know is that the box has features that you like. So Hmm. you work on what's inside the box. And you do things to what's inside the box. You say, I want to take this thing and I want to double it. I want to make two of them or something like that. And then I want to change it into, I don't know, a genetic sequence or something like that. And I don't really care about what the thing is that's holding it. I'm just interested in doing the operations on that thing inside of it. Once you get to that, that uh, that simplistic understanding, then you're in a position to start putting together what the rest of the functional programming universe is all around in enabling that. And, and it is. Yeah. It's like, this is the concept that we have. We want to work on something in these things, and we don't really care what the outer thing is. And then the rest of that machinery with all the fancy names and everything like that is just how people have figured out to do that. And it may not even be the best way. I know Martin Ardersky has said several times that this is our state of the art right now, but it's not necessarily the the only way it will ever be in the future. People have yeah. a way of finding better, simpler ways to do this kind right. of thing. So, And you could imagine, I mean, or at least I imagine, gee, would it be possible to integrate this into the operating, I mean, not into the language so that it would be, you know, rather than language, you know, a function returning, you know, what all languages have returned, it would automatically return a monad yeah. instead. And then the rest of the language would automatically deal with that. So you wouldn't even have to know that's what you were doing. Yeah. And degree. historically, there's been a bunch of such, I don't think it's necessarily been perfected yet, but there's been a bunch of attempts to do this in, in the past. Uh, one that always comes to mind, this will, this will be a blast from the past, if you remember it, is BIOS, one of the earliest, yes. uh, uh, like seriously multi-threaded operating systems to come mm-hmm, out. They had yeah. all the symmetric multiprocessing, and they really tried to turn the whole model inside out with these little routines that you wrote, and they handled all of the threading stuff for you. So that was working yep. on, you know, in in a in many ways that was working on the thing that you were interested in, and not worrying about the box that was containing it. It's another yeah. form of that monadic way of thinking right yeah. um, obviously they didn't call it that at the time i can't remember what they called it actually mm-hmm. uh, co- coroutines or something like that um may have been something well that it was the foundation was coroutines yeah yeah but i a, don't but the, but i think it was because it was at the operating system level instead of defaulting to threads which the rest of them do yeah and i mean if you look at um it's a it's a softer thing but it's no it's no accident that um android has uh, Android programming has like flavors of that because a bunch of the Android team came from BOS. Yeah, I, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. So no. there, there was a I when I was when I was working on that team, there was a bunch of people there that were kind of transplanted from BOS, and and it's the same sort huh. of thing there. You have you have your activities, you have the the box, the framework that you don't really care about, and you have the things that you want to do in it, and you write the things that you want to do in it, and you leave yeah. the the other bits to the uh, you know, to the container, to the thing that's yeah. working on them. And hey, you used a term a bit back where you you talked about chaining, yep. and we have been a bit muddled about this. What is is there a difference? And if so, what is the difference between chaining and composing? I'm not sure. I actually understand what you mean by chaining so well, you use the term like I? so let, let me yeah. give an Did example I? Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I guess i threw it out there without really defining what it was mm-hmm. so yeah go yeah. ahead james so in in a normal function you can you can take a function f and a function g and you take the value uh produced by calling g on a on a value and then you take that and give it to f or you can you can say, all right, let's compose F and G together. And now I get a new function yeah. that then I can get the same behavior of. So that's, that's composition and functions. But with monads, 
you don't do it that way. You chain through calling flat maps on, well, on the monad. No, really, it is composition in that case. Okay, so let, let's let's start simpler than that. If you've got two functions, one of them doubles the number, the other one adds one to it. Uh, if you compose them together, you now have a function that doubles the number and adds one to it in one yeah. go. That's yeah. that's one thing. When you take um, these, and I, I, I do like to use the word containers because monads is so overloaded. Mm -hmm. So when you take these containers, when you take these boxes that you're interested in, you've got you know a, a box with some integer in it or something like that, and then you've got um, another box that contains a function that takes an integer and turns it into a future of uh, yet another integer. And then you've got, and that's by doubling it. And then you've got another one which takes an integer and turns it into a future of that integer plus one, right? We're talking about the same thing we were just doing with the, the functions, but now everything's in this kind of asynchronous space, right? All these operations, this is a trivial case, but all these operations are now capable of running in threads and the answer will be available to you sometime in the future. Composing them together with a for expression, taking those two functions and composing them in a for or a flat map gives you a new single function that takes the integer and gives you back a future of an integer again. That's yeah. what, that's literally what flat map is doing. It's taking um, the first function and the second function. They, both of these things return futures if you just called one on the other, you'd end up with a future of a future. But by doing flat map, you're throwing away one of those. You're actually losing some information. So it's at that point non-reversible. You can't get back to the original that you came from. Mm -hmm. um, it's a one-way function by that stage because you there's two possibilities that give you, or more than, I, I say two, there are m multiple ways that you could have got to that result at that point. Mm -hmm. yep. um, but that is still composition like you and that's what's going on in most of these uh in most of these monadic workflows in most of these kind of container approaches you you're not you're not chaining you are literally composing these things together building bigger blocks out of smaller ones and none of this stuff particularly in the case of futures it's a it's a good it's a good conceptual one to work with i like futures because options are eager and really hmm. you know you can kind of they're simple enough that you can kind of work through them and go oh there's nothing really special about that but as soon as you get to a future you've got a concept that is actually kind of profound it's a it's a result that may not be there yet um but you are still able to do the same operations that you were to that you were able to do with optionals on. yeah and so that, that jump that that kind of uh quantum step of of abstraction is very useful in teaching because you can like well no it may not be that you don't know what the state is anymore right yeah and you are working on this thing assuming it's there and you have your failure states you have your failure propagations but you're just saying i want to do this and then i want to do this and i want to do this do not bother me with the other details yeah so it is really just composition it's just that there is a behavior that is paired with that composition like optionality or asynchronicity or whatever yeah. there's some behavior that that is that is kind of managing the composition yeah uh, whereas with just pure function composition there is no external there is, there's not that other dimension optionality or or asynchronicity or whatever and so, so that's kind of where monads are different. Yeah, it's so still just composition, but it's composition with behavior. Yeah. So if, if by chaining you mean, yeah, that I, okay. So then let's, let's define that in terms of that's what we mean by chaining. Chaining is when you don't compose. So if you were chaining, you would call one function on a actual, you know, instantiated thing. Uh, and then with the result of that, you would then call the other function on that. Yep. Com composing is combining those two functions into one step, but you haven't shoved anything into it yet. Right. So you yeah. you now have a bigger function. Uh, and I think this is where my very, very good friend Runar says this. And he, this was such a freaking awesome statement. I don't know if he... 
I think he actually made this one up, but um, that is the, the single biggest value proposition of this. Pure functional programming like that, where you do composition, it increases your functionality. It increases what you're able to do without increasing the complexity of the surface area that you're doing it with, right? Mm. When you're chaining things together or when you're writing imperative code, you've got a whole bunch of things that happen in order and you're like, I've got to follow this through and I've got to follow this through. When you compose things together, you end up with a new function, a single function that does more. It still yeah. takes some type in. It still gives you some type out. Calling it is one call. Your complexity has not increased, but your capabilities have. And mm. that was mind-blowing to hear that said that well. It's like yeah. that is a fantastic way of looking at the value of these functional programming things is mm. you increase your capabilities, but you don't increase your surface area, your complexity. Bruce is reading the Red Book right now. So it's filling in a whole bunch of details that I and aspects that just didn't weren't there before they just runar yeah. is such a great team i was lucky enough to work with him at uh, one of my that's how i know him uh, one of nice. my previous projects and um he's just very good and you know somebody really understands uh, uh you can tell how much somebody understands about a technology by how well they teach it in terms in the simplest possible terms uh, einstein said it best i think he's he's like you only really understand technology when you can explain it to your own grandmother was what mm -hmm. he said and that's a really good way of, <clears throat> of putting it if you can't break it down into the simplest concepts then you don't at some point your abstraction is flawed you're not you don't have the down to the ground understanding of what's going on and I think when you when you get that, it's tremendously liberating. One of the things that I've seen, and I know James, you're a big Zio, or Z I don't know how you say it, but the Zio. Zio, yeah, yeah. Zio. We, um, that, you know, Bruce, Bruce, and I, and and our friend Bill are writing a book right now that is Scala three and Zio, and we're gonna um, maybe call it effect oriented programming. So, so we're we're deep in in all this right now and enjoying it. But yeah. Sorry, see, what ahead. I like about that is, and this is what I've gained. I've been lucky enough. One of the reasons I do teach by the way um i think i've told you guys this before is i do teaching because it's a lot of fun teaching people but i also do it because of the and this is you know well known and well accepted in say martial arts and stuff like that there comes a point where you don't get any better quickly unless you teach other people and it makes you more mindful of what you're doing huh. as well and so yeah. the teaching really helps me to keep growing as a developer and oh, teaching sure. functional programming was nerve-wracking at first because like everybody else uh, out there, lots of people have these kind of, I want to say, kind of slavish adherence to these <laughs> principles and things like that. And you're like, I'm, I'm putting myself out in front of a firing squad by saying this because I'm like, forget all the names, forget all the all the bullshit and the you know the the fancy terms and everything like that here's basically what you're trying to do and i tried to break it down into very simple terms that were this is why we do this this is what you're trying to achieve and this is the the best tools that we have that we know how to use at the moment for doing this and when i did that it redefined how i look at the whole space which is what's happened in zeo yeah Instead of slavishly following things like, you know, free monads and all these patterns, when you do this long enough, you get a kind of instinctual idea that it doesn't really matter what you call these things or even that the, the concepts are separate anymore. You have a box that does something that you want it to do. You have something inside the box. And really, that box can be whatever, whatever you want to. So... Prior to Zio coming out, one of the things I was working at at SIBO was this kind of framework that broke all the rules of functional programming. It was like what I was really interested in. It was very specific. It wasn't as general purpose as Zio, uh, but it was very specific in that what we were doing was uh, building what you'd think of as layers of geospatial information. And they had a spatial component and a temporal component in them. At a particular point in space and time, this value is this, and it can vary either by yeah. space or by time. And uh, when I started looking at it, I'm like, I could, I could draw on a bunch of these concepts, or instead, I could kind of look at this as a 
what really matters to me is this layer. And what can I do to make one layer behave like another? And the big kind of epiphany moment for me was the combinators, which are, you know, the things that change, that, that transform, that work on things in the box and transform yeah. them into other things. Those combinators didn't have to go on the end of the process like they do for everything else, where you map over the end of it. I can add them to the beginning of it as well, and I can build it backwards as well as forwards. So mm -hmm. you start with something that gives you, uh, like, let's say, um, an RGB image, or not even an RGB image, a single band of raster data. And that's at a particular space. It's cut out of a particular place on the Earth, and it's at a particular snapshot or point in time. Now we have satellites going over um, every few days, right? Uh, and I know when those satellites go over, and I knew there's a, I know there's a new image when the satellite passes over. So I can now, instead of adding on to the end of that, I can add on to the beginning of it and say, well, I've got this thing that's like a single image, and I've got this list of times that things change. I can now put these together, and I can now have a layer that is like a sequence of images, the same space, but different time. Once I've got that, I can then say, well, theoretically, it could be any space and any time that I'm interested in this. So now I can take that sequence of images and now I can add the spatial bit to it and say, well, actually, I'm going to say it's this polygon over here and I'm going to cut it out. And that's going to go onto the front of this function. Hmm. So you're composing backwards and you end up with just the same, uh, no extra surface area. But suddenly I've got something that I can say for this field from 1980 to 2002, I want you to build me like uh, an average crop yield uh, of, uh, of that whole thing for the entire time sequence. And that is a single function. I now pass yeah. it a field. I pass it a bunch of years and I get a result out of the end of it. Now that layer can be a building block for something else. And that's kind of, if, if Zaya had, or Zio, I keep saying it wrong, had been around <laughs> at the time, I wouldn't have written that stuff myself. I'd have just grabbed it and said, okay, you're going to be a yeah. space time thing now. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to limit you to the space time uh, domain. You know, domain, and this is what we're going to work with. And I yeah. think that's a really important thing for API design as well, is something like Zio is hard for people to get because it's so general and powerful that yeah. you kind of walk into it and it's like handing somebody who's never seen a tool before, like a bandsaw, and they're yeah. like, you know, going to cut their arm off or something with it. <laughs> so a big part of this is, well, don't use the whole thing. Find a way to limit it to the domain that you're interested in and simplify the the, the API. The surface area, yeah. Yeah, and that doesn't that doesn't take away from Zio at all. It's the thing that you're using. Yeah. It's tremendously powerful. But what it does is it makes it accessible to more people in a narrower area. And yeah. that I think is you know. Uh, like I said, I, one of these days I'm going to dust off that code again, which I kind of abandoned after I left, uh, and probably just re-implement it on top of Zio and yeah. see how it kind of goes from there. So huh. that's cool. Huh. Always <laughs> educational talking to you. <laughs> I did talk. Didn't mind I? expanded. No, it's good. I like that's it. what one of the things that I've never had a problem with is talking. <laughs> hence, hence all the well, podcasts. We like to listen to you. So. <laughs> Um, we have the the Summer Tech Forum Unconference STFU coming up uh, next month up in Crested Butte. So if you want to come back actually, out here and get on a mountain bike, uh, is that actually in person? You. It's going to yes. be oh, in, yeah. person. in person. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I will bear that in mind. It is. I am on a project right now that is pretty tight, and <laughs> we're heading into like the you know the crunch time. Crunch. But then yeah. again, when is that not going to be true? It's like That's this it. is the problem. That's just managers wanting things. It is. That is absolutely you know, true. Deadline. Is it based on Christmas? <laughs> uh, actually, it's yeah, not, it kind of is. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah, it kind of is. So, but you'll probably be more efficient if you take some time off. Well, there is that. Get on a mountain bike with us. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there <laughs> definitely is that. Uh, actually, Mark, I, I don't, I don't. If you remember, I work with Mark Herron now, who came to the oh, first. Oh, nice! Oh my uh, yeah, he came That's to awesome. the first um, Scala, whatever it was that we did. Yeah, in Crested Butte. 
Yeah, you know? inventor and, of SBT. And that's actually um, where I met him. And yeah, I became very good friends yeah. with him. And, oh my gosh, uh, he's he's brilliant. Just I love working with him. He's a lovely guy as well. He has such a nice a smile. You guy. can tell a lot he, about he people is. from their smile. It's true. And uh, yeah. yeah, we, and we, uh, that, I remember that because we drove. I drove back with him and Josh Surratt. Yep. yep. Back all the way to Denver, back over the Cotton oh, Pass or whatever it was, and awesome. it was just that was just an awesome trip. It makes me happy to remember that. So. Yeah. I get to work with Josh again because he's on Google Cloud yeah. now, and so he and I have done some presenting, and it's been super fun to get to work with him again. But I miss Mark. Mark, it was you know it was. Uh, Havoc and Josh and Mark and I are working on SBT and Activator and yeah, um, it's so much fun working with those guys. It's funny how a lot of times it's the peripheral things like the three of you driving back together or yeah. having meals together or taking walks together or whatever, and that's the stuff that where you have sometimes the most interesting conversations. Yeah, life is way way more important than work. That's, mm-hmm. that's always yeah. been true every time yeah. i've forgotten that something has happened to remind me of that so uh, life yeah like life is the thing where you you yeah. work as my dad said you, you work uh for life you don't live to work yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you work to live you don't live to work right well, we better let you get to your meeting, but yep. um, thank you. It's so good to see you and yeah. catch up with you. And, and hopefully we'll see you up in Crestview, uh, either at STFU or some other time. I am going to make it out there again sometime. And the summer ones are much more likely to be where I come because I'm a mountain biker. I'm a bit of a catastrophe when it comes to uh, skiing and snowboarding, I've decided. Um, yeah. Yeah. I could probably live the rest of my life without getting on skis again, and I'd be quite happy. Well, that's so, interesting because we could have moved the Java Posse round up to the summer at any <laughs> point if that was your preference. Well, I didn't know that at the time. I still had these, uh, you know, these dreams that I would become an Olympic snowboarder, um, but uh, I don't think that's likely to happen. So, given up on your dreams, man. Yeah, well, those particular ones—they weren't—they weren't very realistic. <laughs> the impractical ones. Yeah, they're, they're, they're even less realistic now. all right (laughs) all right well thank you dick all right see you guys